Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by historian Richard Brookheiser. We have already done two episodes in our series on American founders. We have talked about the great Alexander Hamilton and about Governor Morris. And it seems like we're doing a series on the Federalists, the first party in government... We didn't intend it that way, but it's shaping up wonderfully, and so we're moving on today to John Marshall, the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the man who shaped the court, who created the Supreme Court as we know it, and whose legacy is very much in the press these days, it turns out. So, Mr. Brookheiser, thank you for joining me again. I'm pleased to see that your new book is coming out and we will have a biography fit for every reader, not just people who read doorstoppers. So, please, introduce us to John Marshall. Okay, well, thank you for having me again. It's a lot of fun to be here, so I'm glad to be back for my third time. John Marshall was a Virginian, born in 1755, not quite on the frontier of Virginia, but close to it. The first family house was a log cabin, then the second house had glass in its windows, so you can see the family is becoming more prosperous, more civilized. His father, Thomas Marshall, was a land speculator. That was his main job and enterprise in life. He also became a vestryman of the local Anglican parish. He was ultimately elected to the House of Burgesses, so he was a rising local man on the edge of Virginia society. John Marshall was his eldest son, and Thomas had a notion that his male children should become lawyers. John was not the only one to do that. He had a number of brothers, and and most of them followed him and his father's desires into the law. His schooling was mostly homeschooling. He was sent away uh, to, to study at a school in the Tidewater when he was a young man, because there were no local schools where he was growing up, when he was growing up. But most of his education came at home from his father, His father was one of the subscribers to the first American edition of William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. This was a book that had a big impact both in England and overseas in America. It was an attempt to organize and comment on all the laws of England. It was both a study guide for lawyers Uh, for gentlemen who had to be justices of the peace in their local communities. And it also imparted Blackstone's notions about how how the law works and what it does and and why people um, count on it in society. So this this tome was part of uh, John Marshall's youthful reading. Uh, Then the second important thing in his life is the American Revolution, which is when he's 20 years old. Uh, This is when the battles of Lexington and Concord are fought. Uh, Just before that, Patrick Henry gives his give me liberty or give me death oration before the Virginia Convention. Thomas Marshall was in the audience for that because he was a delegate to the convention. This was the institution that had replaced the House of Burgesses. The royal governor governor had dismissed it the year before, and the Burgesses had simply walked across the street in Williamsburg and reconstituted themselves as a convention, a now revolutionary uh, 
body, uh, nevertheless representing Virginia. So this uh, uh, this this ferment uh, reached to uh, the Marshall household. Both father and son enrolled in the local militia. Uh, John saw his first action uh, at the end of 1775. The British uh, occupied uh, the city of Norfolk in southeast Virginia, which was Virginia's largest port. Uh, John was involved in a battle uh, where the British tried to break out of their position. It was called the Battle of Great Bridge. They were trying to cross a, ca cross a causeway through, through the Great Swamp. Uh, there was an engagement. Uh, the British were pushed back, and they ended up pulling out of Norfolk and burning it to the ground as they left. Uh, after that, in uh, 1776, both marshals enrolled in the Continental Army. Uh, they graduated from the local militia to the national, uh, hopefully regular military force. And John saw action in uh, several engagements that were fought around Philadelphia. This was the capital of the new country. Uh, the British made an effort to take it in 1777, a successful effort. And uh, John, John Marshall and his unit tried to slow their advance as they approached Philadelphia from the south. There was a battle in Delaware called Cooch's Bridge. John fought at that. Uh, he fought at the Battle of Brandywine, which was the big battle uh, which George Washington lost after the British captured Philadelphia. Washington counterattacked at Germantown a month later to try and drive the British out. He lost this battle as well. John fought in that one too and sustained a slight uh, wound in his hand. Then at the end of the year, it looked like there was going to be a third battle. Uh, Washington's troops were north of Philadelphia at an area called White Marsh. There was uh, high ground. They had entrenched themselves in case the British attacked. And indeed, the British marched out of Philadelphia towards the American position. Now, at this point, remember, the Americans have fought two large battles in the previous two months. They've lost them both. Whatever supplies they had have virtually run out. Winter has begun. The soldiers are barely clothed. Uh, they're missing equipment. Ammunition is low. This is a desperate situation. Uh, Congress, which has fled Philadelphia, is naturally unhappy about this and wants Washington, expects Washington to somehow remedy the situation. They're urging that he attack the British a second time. He knows that's impossible. Uh, his army just couldn't do it. The best they can do is hold their defensive position. So Marshall, years later, described the situation, and he said Washington rode among all the troops. He spirited up the men. He told them to rely on the bayonet if the British attacked and charged. He seemed to be everywhere, doing everything, trying to hold this army together. After a few days of skirmishing, the British decided we're going to go back to Philadelphia and spend the winter there. And, Wa and Marshall's conclusion was that the British retreat was a tribute to the abilities of their enemies. Even though they'd beaten them in two battles, the British realized that the Americans were not pushovers and they didn't want to risk attacking them 
uphill in an entrenched position. Uh, this was a formative experience for John Marshall. He'd seen the revolution coming close to bottoming out. Uh, the nation's capital had been captured. What had saved it from total disaster? His conclusion was the force, the example, the intelligence of one man, George Washington. Uh, this was the, I think, the imprinting experience of John Marshall's life. He would later call Washington the greatest man on earth. He would call him that superior man. The only book he ever wrote was not a legal book. It wasn't a book like Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. The only book he ever wrote was a biography of George Washington. And he said that the, the uh, fortunes of the revolution rested on Washington's efforts, successful efforts, to maintain the struggle. So, and this, this shaped Marshall's political destiny, as well as his personal destiny, because he saw from his lower rank, he, he rose only ever to be a captain in the army, and of course Washington is the commander-in-chief, but both of them experienced the problems that ensue when there is a government lacking sufficient force. Uh, the government that had declared our independence, that was conducting the Revolutionary War, was simply unable to raise the resources regularly to supply its army. It couldn't do an adequate job consistently. So the soldiers were often underfed, underclothed, undersupplied. Yes. And both George Washington and John Marshall saw that there needed to be a stronger form of government than what the American revolutionaries had first produced. So this is that's just a, a slice of John Marshall's experience in the revolution, but it was a decisive one for his future politics and his future career. Yes. And Valley Forge seems to have been as important for him as in a very different way as we discussed for Governor Morris. And they came to the same conclusions that a strong national government, a Congress competent to supply an army are absolutely needed if America is actually going to be a nation, to have a workable state in any form. And the John Marshall went back to Virginia constantly refused appointments to the national government and even to the Virginia government in some cases, but his convictions about the necessity for a national government made him a long life, uh, a, a lifelong federalist, and indeed he ended up the last of the great federalists. Right, the last one left standing. Yes, you're right. After the war, uh, Marshall, John Marshall resigns his commission in 1781, the last year of the war, and then he be begins courting the woman whom he will ultimately marry. Uh, he also starts his profession as a lawyer. He begins to practice law in Richmond, which is the new capital of the state of Virginia. And uh, he's a very good lawyer. He makes uh, a very good income uh, from the profession of the law. But, you know, in any revolutionary situation there is a new cast of political characters, right? Because the old order has been overthrown, whatever it was, whether it was a, a domestic class that's been overturned or whether it was foreigners who've been sent packing. But there has to be a new government with new people in it. 
so someone with Marshall's uh, abilities and talents would almost inevitably get drawn into holding public office. Uh, he does get elected to the Virginia legislature uh, several times. Uh, he take, begins to take an interest in national politics when a new constitution is written and it has to be ratified by the states. Marshall is uh, elected as a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He's one of a cadre of federalists uh, who, who consistently argue in favor of the Constitution at that gathering. Virginia is a state the Constitution has to have. It's the largest state in the country. One in five Americans are Virginians. If Virginia didn't ratify, the country would be uh, split in two, uh, two halves, north of Virginia and south of it. Uh, Virginia is a must-have state, and the Federalists do indeed prevail there. So after the new government is up and running, George Washington is the president. Uh, he, he even offers Marshall several jobs, which Marshall turns down. He's still interested in making money. But national politics keeps pulling him back into its orbit. He gets involved in some of the controversies of the Washington administration, particularly foreign policy. How will this new country react to the French Revolution? And the party which comes to call itself the Federalists is very skeptical of the French Revolution. These are men like the Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, the Vice President John Adams, and ultimately President Washington himself. On the other side, there's Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, uh, Representative James Madison. Both of them are Virginians. They are initially very hopeful about the French Revolution. They're strong partisans of the new revolutionary regime. They think this is just a repeat of our experience, uh, and we ought to help them out, even as they helped us out in our revolution. And this becomes a very fraught political issue. Uh, Marshall is a Virginia supporter of the administration. He supports the Washington's administration's skepticism about the French Revolution and its unwillingness to get involved in France's struggles. So this is, this is an example of Marshall being drawn into the national political orbit. And then finally, in the late 1790s, uh, Washington has served two terms. He refuses to run a third time. John Adams is the second president and also the second Federalist president. George Washington asks John Marshall to visit him at Mount Vernon. He asks Marshall and one of his own nephews, Bushrod Washington, who's uh, about eight years younger than John Marshall is. And he tells these two men, he basically orders them to run for Congress. Yep. He says, you know, federalism in Virginia is, is not in such good shape. We need, we need to buck it up. Uh, you two guys have to run for Congress. Well, Marshall wants to still make money, you know. He doesn't want to leave that to uh, uh, to go to Philadelphia and be in the Congress. And he he begs off and he begs off. And the story is that that he finally he can't stand stand the pressure anymore. Here he is disagreeing with the greatest man on earth. So he decides to get up at the crack of dawn and leave, just take off, just leave Mount Vernon. But Washington has gotten up even earlier than he has, and he has put on his old uniform. <laughs> <laughs> and that garb 
you know, he asks him again, and Marshall, Marshall, of course, has to agree. Now that you know, that may that seems like that's a story that sprung up after the fact, but but the fact is that Marshall was reluctant, but Washington persuaded him, and he does run for Congress. Uh, he gets elected to Congress at the very end of the 19th century, and then this tees him up for the most important job he will ever hold. And his entrance into Federalist politics, his acquaintance with John Adams, his leadership of a Federalist faction in the House, and the experience of the quasi-war and the political conflicts that emerged in America already separating two parties seem to have cemented him on the side of federalism and prepared him for executive office on en route to the judiciary branch. Yes, John Adams uh, is, at the end of his term, he's looking for a new Secretary of State. He's, he's cleaned out his cabinet. He's had some disagreements with his, uh, uh, with his cabinet secretary. So uh, the post of Secretary of State is vacant, and he picks Congressman John Marshall to hold that job. Uh, Marshall had a great had a talent for getting along with every everyone who was a Federalist, and this is even though the Federalist Party, as it uh, sails into headwinds at the beginning of the 19th century, like many failing parties, people start quarreling with each other. Um, you know, famously Alexander Hamilton versus John Adams, but but John Marshall managed to stay friendly with everybody who was in the Federalist Party. Um, Partly was his geniality. He was just a very easy guy to get along with, and people liked getting along with him, and he didn't like picking needless quarrels. So Adams taps him to be Secretary of State. Uh, Marshall is uh, very competent, very very useful and helpful. But John Adams loses his re-election bid to Thomas Jefferson. So there's going to be a new president, and there's going to be a change of parties. This is the first time this has happened in American history. So the lame duck Adams administration is um, scrambling to do the best for federalism that it can. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is going to be the new president. Uh, Party uh, is going to have majorities in both houses of Congress. It's a flip of Congress. Today we would call it a, a blue wave. Uh, so where where can federalists go? Well, they can go into the judiciary. So uh, John Adams, uh, we, we learned about this in school as the midnight uh, judges. He's, he's appointing Federalists to positions in the federal judiciary. And the most important post is that of Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which has just become vacant. The third man to hold that job, Oliver Allsworth, writes the president and says, my health is no good, I have gout, I don't want to do this anymore, I quit. So... John Adams offers the job to the first man to have held it, John Jay, great diplomat, spy master, patriot, Federalist Papers author. Jay was chief justice for six years from 1789 to 95. Then he became governor of New York. So Adams is going to give him the job again. He nominates Jay. The Senate confirms him. Then he gets a letter from Jay saying, I'm not going to take this job. Not worth it. Jay's exact words were that it lacked dignity. Okay, and this also tells you uh, how the Supreme Court was regarded in 1801, which is where we now are. 
the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is not willing to come back to be Chief Justice again because the job, in his opinion, lacks dignity. So, time is running out. Adams calls in his Secretary of State, John Marshall. He says, who shall I pick now? Marshall doesn't know. After a pause, Adams says, I believe I will nominate you. And so his name is sent to the Senate. The Senate confirms him. The new Chief Justice, John Marshall, serves for the 1801 term, which is at uh, at the beginning of the year, um, still in the lame duck period of the Adams administration. And that's how his tenure as Chief Justice begins. So maybe let's let's turn to that now. Yeah. John Marshall served for more than 30 years, and he led the court that authored more than a thousand opinions, half of which he wrote himself. His influence is hard to, to describe properly, and I think this is why we need to understand how grand his design was and how difficult the execution being that he was opposed by the elected branches throughout that tenure, or almost. He was sort of on friendly terms with John Quincy Adams. And... Moreover, it's useful, I think, to compare him to Blackstone, who served under a king and who had a design uh, of organizing tradition and to the extent to which he could revolutionize it with political principles of justice, it had to be done discreetly and between the lines, so to speak. Whereas, as we said, it was never the intention or the interest of Marshall to write anything like the commentaries and uh, nor was it uh, his interest to systematize, if that were in any way possible, the laws of America. However, he did bring system. He did bring out the everything that was perhaps implicit in the Constitution, but as yet unknown to Americans, political or apolitical, about the importance and the specific powers of the federal judiciary, and therefore how the Constitution can be applied in a way that affects everybody's lives, and reminds everybody of the one thing that cannot change very easily in America. That's right. The, consti the Constitution itself, as, as Marshall would write, constitutions are made for ages to come. Now, now there are two ways to attack, attack his legacy. We, we can and, and we should look at some specific decisions that laid out what you might call almost policies, but, but very specific positions on certain aspects of the law. Then there's also Marshall in general. Uh, what was his larger effect on the Supreme Court? Maybe, maybe let's start there because that's, that's easiest uh, to say, easiest to grapple with. Marshall, the short answer of Marshall's great accomplishment is he made the Supreme Court appear of the Congress and of the presidency. You know, instead of being the branch of government where, you know, the first chief justice doesn't want to take the job again because it lacks dignity, Marshall raises it to the level of the legislature and of the executive. Now, how does he do this? There are probably four ways. One is just length of tenure. He becomes chief justice in 1801. He's only 45 years old. He stays there until he's 79, 1835. So he's Chief Justice for 34 years. That is still a record for Chief Justices. 
he gives the oath of office to five presidents in nine inaugurals. He's there a long time. Second factor, he's a genial man. He loves to laugh. He loves a good drink. The wine merchants of Washington, D.C. called their best stuff the Supreme Court when Marshall was Chief Justice because he was he was one of their best customers. Uh, the, the best story about Marshall, if you only remember one story, remember this one. When he becomes Chief Justice, the court already has a tradition, which is that when the justices are deliberating after, after their day in court, after they've heard the lawyers arguing, then they go back to their boarding house, they, they have dinner, and they, they talk about the cases that they are hearing for their session. And the custom was that they could only have wine if it were raining outside. And I assume that would be to cheer them up. So what Marshall would do is he would ask one of his associate justices, often Justice Story, Brother Story, look out the window and tell us what the weather is. And Story would say, well, the sky is clear. And Marshall would say, our jurisdiction is so vast that it must be raining somewhere. <laughs> so... Wine was always served to the justices of the Marshall Court. Okay, so that's the second thing. He's, he's a genial guy. The third thing is he defers to his brother justices. If there are justices who are expert in an area of law that he is not, he lets them take the lead. Uh, admiralty law was one such area. Uh, law involving land titles was another one. So he, he would defer to, to justices who were really up on those areas of law. And, of course, in doing so, he got deference in return. Then the fourth factor, certainly as important as any of the others, is Marshall was always the smartest man in the room. Uh, one lawyer who argued before him and it became an attorney general, he said, Marshall's mind was like the ocean, Everybody else's minds were like ponds. He said Marshall had an ability to see the whole scope of a case without losing track of all its constituent parts. He could see the details and he could see the whole shape. And he was able to express his views in an authoritative, clear manner. So he's and and his mind he's kind of slow to get going. He's he's not one of these people who's you know maybe quick quick with an analysis, quick with a joke, not quick with an analysis. But once he does get going, he's almost implacable. There's something unstoppable about his reasoning. Okay, so that's John Marshall and 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 what he does with the court and and how he does it. Oh, I, I should add one other factor, which was not under Marshall's control, but which he benefited from, which was that there was a 12-year period when the personnel of the court did not change. Nobody retired, nobody died for 12 years. This goes from 1811 to 1823. Uh, and there's only been one other period in the Supreme Court's history like that. That was uh, at the end of the 20th century. But so, so he also benefits from that consistency. These are justices that he's that that he knows that he's known, uh, and they've all been together, and 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 they don't change. So that that's also a help.
and we should add that he originally led a federalist court, but by 1811, everyone except him had been replaced. That's right. Uh, there were, well, and, and Bushrod Washington was, was still on the Supreme Court. This oh, yes. Was, this was the other man that George had summoned to Mount Vernon to tell him to run for Congress. But he'd actually gotten on the Supreme Court before John Marshall had. But, but yes, you're right. By uh, 1811, they, they were the last two Federalists left. So it had gone from all Federalists to two Federalists plus five Republicans, which was Jefferson and Madison's party, now the Democrats. So it's a partisan shift. But, of course, what happened is Marshall converted all these guys. Uh, this drove Thomas Jefferson to distraction. You know, he, he got to appoint three justices of the Supreme Court. James Madison gets to pick two. And then all these guys get on the court, and lo and behold, they end up agreeing with, with John Marshall. At, for all the reasons that I said, you know, the geniality, the the deference, uh, and just the power of his mind. So let's look at some of the um, some of the big cases. You know, probably the most famous one, although I'm I'm going to say something a little contrary about it, is Marbury versus Madison. Uh, this is a very uh, early important uh, constitutional case. It's 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 heard and and the decision is made in Thomas Jefferson's first term. And this is uh, the first instance of the Supreme Court saying that a law that Congress passed or a portion of that law is unconstitutional, and and therefore it is it is void. Now this this is a very important principle. I'll only say that this was not new when uh, Marshall wrote his decision in Marbury versus Madison. The concept of judicial review was already out there. Uh, Marshall himself had mentioned it when he was a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He gave a speech on the judiciary, and he said, you know, if the legislature does something unconstitutional, the courts will strike it down. Uh, Alexander Hamilton had made the same argument in the Federalist Papers, uh, and not just these these young proto-Federalists. This was an idea that really had common, large currency in, in the legal intellectual world. So Marshall is not is making an important point, but it's not it's not as groundbreaking as it's often presented. I would say that uh the first decision he makes uh which really uh begins to make new ground comes in 1810. This is a case called Fletcher versus Peck. And this has to do with a sale of land that the state of Georgia had done at the end of the 18th century. Georgia was was probably the poorest state in the Union. Uh, It had a lot of debts. What it did have was a lot of land going from the western border of what's now the state of Georgia all the way to the Mississippi, Uh, what are now the states of, of Alabama and Mississippi. These were all part of Georgia's domain. If Georgia could sell off that land, uh, it could uh, fill its treasury, it could get itself out of the hole. So Georgia does this. The tract of land is called the Yazoo Country, because there's a river called the Yazoo River that runs through it. So the Yazoo sale was (laughs) for a bargain price like a cent and a half per acre. They sold 30 million acres. And every member of the Georgia legislature had been bribed. 
to do this by the purchasers. Uh, the going rate was $1,000 per legislator. One guy only took 600 and he said, well, I wasn't greedy. Uh, <laughs> so, now, okay, so they sell all this land, 30 million acres, and then, um, well, the people of Georgia were unhappy with this. Uh, every single legislator got, got voted out of office, and, you know, new ones came in. And they passed a law nullifying the sale. They just said, we do not recognize this sale. And any official of the state of Georgia which recognizes it will be fined $1,000, which is a lot in, in the late 18th century. So, so what they're trying to do is, is to obliterate it from the law books of the state of Georgia. Now, also, also remember that the 11th Amendment was passed in the last decade of the 18th century. This is not in the Bill of Rights. It's the First Amendment after the first 10 of the Bill of Rights. The 11th says that a state may not be sued by a citizen of another state. Okay, so this is how states want to protect themselves from vexatious out-of-state lawsuits. So Georgia thinks it's safe. It, 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 has, for, it has prevented this case from being becoming a case in its own courts, and the 11th Amendment will protect it from suits by people outside of the state. Now, why is that important? That's because the purchasers of the Yazoo tract had immediately resold it. I mean, that's why you buy all this, this frontier land. You're not going to live there yourself. You're going to resell it. This is speculation. And many of the second wave of purchasers were from New England. You know, they were looking... Hey, cheap land in Georgia. Great, this is an investment. Let's snap it up. So a lot of New Englanders had had bought, you know, uh, had been the second purchasers of this Georgia land, but they couldn't go to court. Um, they couldn't sue the state of Georgia, uh, and they couldn't bring the state of Georgia into court saying, "Look, you sold this land. Now you can't just now you can't just take it back," because the Eleventh Amendment uh, forbids them. So. Uh, what happens is two men, Fletcher and Peck, they are citizens of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And uh, one of them has bought a Lazoo, Yazoo land from the other. And now he takes him to court saying, you sold me land you didn't have a title to because the state of Georgia has taken this all back. I want my money back. I paid $3,000 for this land, which you didn't have a legitimate title to. I want my money back. So they sue each other. Citizens of different states suing each other, that is a matter for federal court. That's what the Constitution says. So they get their case into federal court, and it rises to the Supreme Court. Now, obviously, this was a set-up deal, right? Fletcher and Peck were working together. They brought yes, this case to court to test the validity of Georgia's revocation of the Yazoo sale. That's what they were doing. Yes. And to it add comes... a brief detail, uh, Alexander Hamilton was also in a, a, uh, involved in this as an advisor. Yes, he had been when when the. Um, when the, land, when the Georgia legislature revoked the land deal, the purchasers wanted a legal opinion about, about their options, and they went to Alexander Hamilton, who was out of government then. He was a lawyer in private practice in New York, and he wrote a very, you know, very terse opinion 
saying that, well, this will probably come into federal court, and the courts are likely to rule that uh, the Georgia action violated uh, the contract clause of the Constitution, which forbids the states from uh, violating the, the obligation of contracts. That was Hamilton's opinion. Now, Hamilton knew about the contract clause in the Constitution because he probably was the man responsible for putting it in there. Uh, there had been some debate about contracts during the Constitutional Convention, nothing conclusive. The contracts clause appears in the very last draft of the Constitution produced by the Committee of Style on which Hamilton sat. These were the five men who were supposed to put the Constitution in its, in its final form. Uh, Governor Morris is, is the man who ultimately writes the job, but Hamilton is also on the committee. And lo and behold, here, here's a contracts clause now, now in the Constitution. Hamilton, being a lawyer, probably made sure that that got in there. All right, that was what Hamilton did in the 1790s. But now, now we're 1810. Hamilton's been dead for six years. And here are the cases before the Supreme Court. And what John Marshall does is he, he accepts the argument that Hamilton had made. Hamilton's argument had been published, by the way. It had been published in a pamphlet in the 1790s. So it was out there. The legal world knew about it. And Marshall says that George's action violates uh, the security of contracts. And he says that the contracts clause is a bill of rights for the people of the states. Now, this, this can strike us as, as surprising and audacious because we think of the Bill of Rights as the first ten amendments, guaranteeing freedom of speech, uh, no establishment of religion, right to bear arms, you know, no, uh, no searches and seizures without warrants, all those sorts of rights. That's what we think of as the Bill of Rights. But here John Marshall is saying, no, the Bill of Rights is the provision of the Constitution that forbids the states from violating uh, the obligation of contracts. So he is, he is establishing the security of contracts in American constitutional law, which has huge implications for our economic development, for our social development. So that's, that's what I think the importance of Fletcher, Fletcher versus Peck is. Yeah, it's a very nice way of tying up our three federalist subjects so far. And it shows again how subtle thinking must be to comprehend what goes on in America. A contract wouldn't seem as the first thing or as the big deal in the revolution or the constitution. But it is the thing that transcends state borders and that will force people into constitutional adjudication. And well, then citizenship and its rights and how people are going to get along when inevitably conflicts over property arise, all of a sudden all of this becomes very, very important and urgent in a court of law. Well, that's right. And it also means people have security. It means if you make a deal, the deal will stick. And uh, you don't have to worry about the legislature coming along later and tearing it up. Uh, you know, when, when you get it down in black and white, then that's what's going to happen. That's what that's what both parties contract to do, and then they're going to have to do it. And they can't then turn around and finagle with the legislature and say, oh, you know, let me off the hook here. That's not going to happen. Your contracts are going to stand. So it's, that, that is a, a very important decision. I think a, a second 
very important decision, 1819 McCullough versus Maryland. And this is a case, uh, there are two aspects to it. It involves the second bank of the United States. Uh, Alexander Hamilton had, had set up the first bank of the United States in the Washington administration. It ran for 20 years from 1791 to 1811. It was a bank that held the deposits of the federal government. It made loans to the federal government. Uh, uh, but it also, in effect, controlled the money supply. It was a kind of forerunner of the Federal Reserve. Not, not exactly, because it was also a private, a private bank doing private business. But this was a key part of, of Hamilton's um, fiscal plan. Uh, the charter was not renewed. Uh, then, after the War of 1812, a second bank of the United States was chartered in 1816, again, with a 20-year charter. Now, both banks, well, the first bank had been opposed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison on the grounds that Congress, uh, it was not an enumerated power of Congress to set up such a thing according to the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that mentions a bank of the United States. So, said they, how can we do this? Uh, and Hamilton's argument was, well, if a bank will facilitate an enumerated power given to the government, and if it's not forbidden elsewhere in the Constitution, then Congress can set such a thing up. Uh, this was the argument that George Washington accepted, uh, and it's an argument that James Madison later accepted, even though he disagreed with it, when the second bank of the United States is chartered by the time that he is president in 1816. So the Second Bank of the United States still had enemies. Um, some states uh, passed laws taxing out-of-state banks, including the Second Bank of the United States. Some of these taxes were merely revenue raisers. Others were punitive. Uh, they were so high they were designed to keep the, the second to keep any out-of-state bank out of your own state. So Maryland had a revenue-raising law, and um, this went to court. Uh, the clerk of the Second Bank of the United States, a man named McCullough, he issued a note. Um, he had not paid the tax that, that Maryland said you had to pay, so he was, uh, he was sued by the state of Maryland, and the case comes to the Supreme Court. So the two issues before John Marshall are the old issue of the constitutionality of a bank of the United States, but a second important issue are federal courts supreme over state courts? Because this had come on an appeal from a Maryland state court, ultimately up to the Supreme Court. On the first issue of the constitutionality of the Second Bank, Marshall follows Hamilton. He accepts Hamilton's argument. He even quotes it. I mean, that's how closely he's, he's tracking his, his Federalist, now his late Federalist colleague. Then on the issue of supremacy, uh, he says... Uh, yes, in this case, federal courts are supreme over state courts. The Constitution has given them that power. And the Constitution was not a compact among states. It was a compact of the people of the United States. He says it's a government by them. It's a government that operates upon them. It's set up for their benefit. And he's the, the argument he's making, he's, he's laying out the terms that ultimately will find their way into the Gettysburg Address, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So Marshall in 1819 makes the first assembly of, of these prepositions defining 
what the federal government is. That the federal government, in, in the powers that it has been given, is a government of the people of the United States. It's not a compact that the states have entered into. It's an act of the entire people. And this is a thought that will ring on through the years and finally be most eloquently expressed by Abraham Lincoln. So that's McCullough versus Maryland in 1819. And then the third one I want to talk about, um, equally important, happens in 1823, um, excuse me, 1824. This is the tail end of that period of unity on the Marshall Court. And this is Gibbons versus Ogden. And this is a, a, a suit involving national commerce. And the form that it takes is the steamboat. Uh, the steamboat, uh, various men had, had, had built steamboats in the 18th century, but the one who was the most successful with it was Robert Fulton. I mean, successful not, not in the sense that his boats floated better than the other guy's boats, but, but he was able to make uh, money off it. And the reason he was able to make money off it was he got a backer, a wealthy backer, Robert Livingston, uh, of a great political family in New York State. Livingston becomes Fulton's patron, and together they launch a steamboat that sails up and down the Hudson, and instead of taking three days to go from New York to Albany, uh, you, can, you can go to New York, from New York to Albany, and back in four days. You can make the round trip in four days instead of you know three days for one way. This is a huge, huge innovation. But... Uh, the innovators want to protect themselves. So they get the New York legislature to give them a monopoly for 30 years. The only people who can run steamboats in New York waters will be Livingston and Fulton. Now, you know, the design for a steamboat, it's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, Livingston was, was a very clever man, and he figured out how to, how to convert steam power into you know, a paddle wheel to make the boat go. But once he's done this, I mean, everybody can look at it. They can see how it works, and other people build steamboats too. And they try and sail them on New York waters. Too bad. Uh, the monopoly has its monopoly for 30 years, and they're going to stick to it. So there are fights in court. Uh, they, they, they win some battles in court. They buy off the competition. They give, they give some guys in Albany who've built a steamboat. They say, well, we'll give you Lake Champlain, but we'll keep the Hudson. So that's the deal they make. So this goes on for years. And finally, the final result is there's a man named Aaron Ogden. He's in New Jersey, and he has been running steamboats from Elizabeth, New Jersey, into Staten Island, into New York waters. Uh, he, he is taken to court by the Monopoly. He and the Monopoly make a deal. So he becomes a licensee of the Monopoly. He's now part of the, of the Livingston-Fulton Monopoly. He takes on a partner named Thomas Gibbons, who helps him out. Then Gibbons and Ogden have a falling out. Um, the way this, I have to tell this story because it's so funny. Uh, Gibbons had a daughter who apparently had slept with her fiancé. There was gossip to this effect. So Gibbons wanted himself, his wife, and his daughter to sign a statement in the newspaper saying that this story was false. Now, the trouble was the story apparently was true. 
<laughs> Ogden thinks this is a bad idea. You know, don't go to the newspapers. Just just leave it alone. Uh, Gibbons is so enraged by this advice that he goes to Ogden's house with a horsewhip to whip him. Uh, Ogden retreats out the back door, sues Gibbons for trespass. This is the end. <laughs> this is the end of their partnership. So now Gibbons is a competitor of the steamboat monopoly, and Gibbons hires as his pilot a young Staten Island ferryboat pilot named Cornelius Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. So this is when Vanderbilt first uh, first gets into business in a big way. He's the captain of Gibbons's boats. Vanderbilt is great. He builds himself a secret room in the middle of his boat, so if the process servers, you know, board, he can go in there and hide. They won't be able to find him. I mean, he just plays cat and mouse, you know, with the cops in, in New York Harbor. But he also is sent to Washington to hire for Gibbons. Uh, one of the great lawyers of the day, Daniel Webster. So, Gibbons sues the monopoly. It's Gibbons versus Ogden, and it comes to the Supreme Court. And the argument that Daniel Webster makes is that the Commerce Clause of the Constitution overrules any state monopoly, such as the one that New York is trying to maintain, even if Congress has not yet legislated on it. That Congress has a latent power, which even if it has not exercised it, the states may not trespass on it. This is a very sweeping argument. What's interesting about Marshall's decision, he he records this argument. He says it's very forceful. He says, I'm not sure it's been refuted. But he ends up deciding the case on, on a smaller point which is that Gibbons had a coasting license for his boats issued by the federal government. Now, this coasting license was a matter of ID for tax purposes. It distinguished domestic vessels from foreign ones. So if we're protecting domestic vessels against foreign competition, you show your coasting license. You don't have to pay whatever fees or taxes the, the foreign ships have to pay. So that's what it was. But Marshall says, well, a license is a license to sail, and if you have a federal coasting license, you ought to be able to take your boat into New York waters. So that's the basis on which he decides this Commerce Clause case. He entertains the larger argument, and then he sort of backs off at the last minute and decides it on a smaller case. So it's 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 kind of a a opening a window into a field without quite going through it. But the effect of his decision was that the number of boats in New York waters just quadrupled instantly. You know all the comp, all the competition that had been bottled up for years, they started sailing their boats in and out of New York and and in every other the the Mississippi River, every other stream and harbor in the United States, and it it caused a great flourishing of commerce. So even though it's kind of a backdoor decision, it had very far-reaching effects. So those are the three specific decisions that I would point to, um, sanctity of contracts, uh, supremacy of federal courts over states in, in many cases or most cases, and the Commerce Clause. And these were these were uh, decisions that Marshall felt were justified by the Constitution, and they also happened to coincide with um, Federalist Party policy preferences. So the Federalists were, you know, very interested in having a flourishing national economy, 
and they also uh, feared tendencies towards disunion. They were always fearful that that uh, a strong stance for states' rights might lead to disunion. So they were very interested, for instance, in establishing the supremacy supremacy of federal courts over state courts. So that's what I would pull from Marshall's golden age. Of course, everyone should go out and buy your book on John Marshall. When does it come out, sir? The publication date is the 13th. So one week after the election. I mean, I'm sorry that the Supreme Court has been so out of the news recently, but (laughs) I try to make this as relevant as I can. And, you know, the relevance is this Kavanaugh fight was just a demonstration of it. The Supreme Court looms so large in our national life. And, of course, there are other reasons for that beyond John Marshall's career. Not all of them good. But he was the beginning. He was the first man to make this job, which John Jay had turned down, into an important central one in our national life. So for good, for ill, he's the man who began to make the Supreme Court what it now is. And so if you want to know how that happened, why it happened, and who the players were, because it's quite a cast of characters. There are his fellow justices, there are the lawyers who argue before him, then there are the politicians alongside who are either cheering him on or, in most cases, going tut-tut. We're, we're not sure we like this. But it's a very interesting slice of life of the first third of the 19th century. It gives you a nice snapshot of that period. Precisely because we live in certain ways in troubled times politically, going back to the sources, figuring out how this started in the first place and what it says about American character is a great way to figure out which things are just local or temporal anomalies and which things are just, this is America and this is what we're going to have to deal with. Right, I mean, a lot of these issues, you know, they're still going on. They're still being uh, litigated. What should the federal government's power vis-a-vis the states be? How how all-pervasive should it be? I mean, these issues are not dead. You know, we, we know that steamboats can sail anywhere. That's settled. But a lot of these issues are still ongoing, and Marshall is still cited. And uh, these issues bring neatly together our first three Federalists, just like Alexander Hamilton was the man behind the first national bank. Governor Morris tried for a national bank during the Revolution. These issues of contract, of commerce, of allowing and supporting American citizens, even against local political authorities, or perhaps especially against them, in order to let the national character show up. This is just what America is like. And there is something wise, as you pointed out, in John Marshall refusing to an extent the high principle of Daniel Webster and preferring instead to let American citizens do the work of imposing freedom of commerce and giving life to the interstate commerce clause. Well, so what I can say is read the book. You'll find a lot more in there. A lot of it grand. Some of it, I hope, fun detail. And I want to thank you for having me on again. Sir, it is a pleasure. Maybe next time we can talk John Adams, and I guess that wraps up our great Federalist series. Uh, I admired your book on America's first political dynasty, the Adamses, and so when we find time, we should do that as well. All right, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, sir. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.